Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. This morning, we are back in the book of Isaiah. So if you have your copy of God's Word close at hand, I invite you to turn there to Isaiah chapter 36. Isaiah chapter 36. We have been looking at this whole section, 28 to 39, for several, several Lord's days. And um, we still have one more message. We'll look at 38 and 39 next Sunday, which actually is not chronological. 38 and 39 happens probably before 36 and 37, but thematically it is placed before by Isaiah as he is inspired by the Spirit of God. The theme of this entire chapter, or this entire section, has been, as we have uh, reiterated week by week, faith toward God. The, the heart of this passage, these, pa- these chapters, is faith toward God. God's people are presented as those who trust him, and trusting in him, therefore, are demonstrate that faith in a life of obedience, a life of obedience that touches every aspect of our heart and lives. From chapter 28 to 33, Isaiah alternates between words of woe, kind of condemnation and judgment, that are intended to confront self-righteousness, they're, they're intended to confront uh, the rebellious amongst the people in Judah, uh, and But he also uh, salts within those words of woe, words of promise that are intended to comfort the afflicted. They're meant to, uh, to encourage those who are faithful. And then we saw it in chapters 35, uh, 34 and 35, which um, we looked at two Sundays ago, and function almost like an appendix to 20 to 33, this ultimate woe in chapter 34, and an ultimate word of promise and divine blessing in chapter 35. So altogether, these chapters are meant to hammer home the timeless message that trust in God as, uh, is, is essential. Our, our, our trust must be fixed on the Lord as king, and to trust in human power and human might and human capacity is foolishness. It is utter foolishness. Isaiah is revealing something to us about God's character, and it is meant to provoke a present response in the hearts of his people. And, uh, and that response is one of faith. As we, um, as we speak about God's climactic judgment and his salvation at the end of the age, though, it, it forces us, it should force us, to ask those kind of ultimate questions of what do you want your internal inheritance to be? Do you want it to be one of divine devastation or redeemed rejoicing? Will you be swept up in God's wrath against the nations, which he describes in really uh, brutal details in 28 to 35, or will you delight yourself in Zion's happy future? The, the contrast between just even 34 and 35 couldn't be more stark. They're literally mirror images of one another. Uh, and the difference maker between those who will enjoy eternal blessedness and those who will endure eternal suffering, it isn't, the difference maker isn't your ethnicity, it isn't your, your station in life, it isn't even your religious performance kind of relative to those around you. The difference maker is the object of your faith. What are you placing your trust in? Are you trusting upon the Lord Jesus Christ as, his, as, as king, as savior, or are you trusting in yourself? Are you ultimately relying on your wisdom, your ways, and your efforts? Because the first path, trusting in Christ, leads to eternal life, and the second path obviously leads to eternal destruction. As we come to 28 to 39, uh, though, as we look at these chapters, they're not just comprised of prophetic oracles of judgment uh, and salvation. They also, 
in, these, in this whole section record a number of historical events. But even these are meant to be faith builders for us as we study the Word of God uh, and as we work through this, these texts. They are meant to be faith builders in every generation. And God is not limited to just one or two ways of communicating divine truth. We have to understand that. God uses prophetic speech, and he uses historical narrative. God uses literature, wisdom literature, and apocalyptic styles of communication. God uses proverbs, uh, truisms, and he uses letters from one man or one group to another. He uses law, and he uses lament. I mean, there's a whole variety of common forms, styles, and subject matters that God, through his spirit, empowers the authors of Scripture, to communicate divine truth. And no, no genre is more um, valuable or less valuable than the others. All of them are God-breathed. All of them are infallible. All of them are profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness so that we would be adequate, complete, equipped for every good work. And what's before us this morning in chapters 36 and 37 uh, is basically historical narrative um, by recording who and what and where and when and sometimes even how God's character is demonstrated to us in the text. Uh, and divine truths are taught. Man's sinful position, his pitiful condition is exposed. All of that is given to us in the text, but it's done in a way that makes those realities memorable. It's done in a way that makes those um, uh, makes us more, even more accountable for what we have learned and studied. Isaiah could have laid out divine truth in very bland, sort of propositional statements. He could have done it that way, and, and sometimes he will. But instead, the Spirit here carries him along to reinforce the absolute necessity of faith and trust in God, and he does that by telling a story. And not a made-up story, but a historical account of what took place. It is a story that recalls how God delivered lowly Judah from the hand of the mighty Assyrians and demonstrated that he alone is the king of kings and that he alone is worthy of all of our trust. And when you think about the countless ways, just reading, even if you haven't read the rest of Scripture, even if you've read what is, uh, God has revealed to his people up to this point in redemptive history, it is amazing to think of the countless ways he has demonstrated covenant faithfulness. How many ways he has shown uh, human strength is useless. How many times he has shown that he exalts the humble and that he humbles the exalted. Right? You, you think at some point, even just up to this point, forget the rest of scripture, you would think at some point that message would break through and stick. And yet, time and again, even today, God's people have to be reminded of the word of the Lord that was given to Zerubbabel through Zechariah the prophet, where he said, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. God's kingdom plan is moving forward, but it's not moving forward by human ingenuity and maneuvering. It is not moving forward by brute strength and is not moving forward by worldly wisdom. God's kingdom plan moves forward in such a way that the triune God gets all the praise all the honor, and all the glory. I mean, just think about what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1. He says, God has chosen the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong. 
He says, the base things of the world and the despise God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify or bring to nothing the things that are. This is, this is God's MO. This is what he does. God, our God loves to turn apparent nobodies into somebodies. Our God delights to turn apparent defeats into victories. Why does he do this? Why does God operate in this way? Well, he does it because this is how he receives the greatest glory. It is about him and his glory. Paul says in Romans 11, all things are from him and through him and to him. It is downright embarrassing, though, how often we forget that and go about our lives as if all things are from us and through us and to us. That's how we live live our lives. And that's how Israel and Judah, on the whole, conducted themselves in this period of the divided monarchy. If you remember back in chapter 5, Isaiah laments, really God, but through the mouth of Isaiah, laments that he had done a total work in his vineyard Israel. And with the reasonable, perfectly reasonable expectation that having put all that work in, that it would produce good grapes. There would be good fruit that comes out of that work. But he says, lo and behold, it's only brought forth worthless ones. God had done we saw in chapter 5 a total work in Israel and Judah, and yet it looks like a total loss. But we have to remember, our God delights in turning apparent defeats into victories. The tiny nation, Judah, found itself staring down at what was essentially an existential threat at the hand of a superpower in Assyria. And as we're going to see this morning, it really does look ominous. But we have to remember that our God loves to turn apparent nobodies into somebodies. And ultimately loves to to take apparent somebodies and turn them into nobodies. And that's what we're going to see him do in our text this morning. And so I want to begin the narrative by looking at chapter 36 verses 1 to 17 where we see Jerusalem's distress. Now hopefully you've read through these chapters, or at least skim through them in advance. I encourage you to read the chapters that we're going to be covering uh, the week before, just because there's so much content, and they're not super familiar portions of Scripture. I I really think this will serve us well in terms of being uh, at least familiar with the content. That way, as I explain it, you're like, oh yeah, I've already seen that. So for next week, read 38 and 39. If you haven't uh, read in advance this week, or even if you did, I encourage you to read 38 and 39, because that's what we're going to look at next Sunday. But in chapter 36 and verse 1, Isaiah reveals Jerusalem begins to unveil Jerusalem's distress. It says, Now in the fourteenth year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and seized them. Again, the text uh, somewhat abruptly shifts gears here between 35 and 36. Uh, and one of the few, it's, it gives us really one of the few timestamps that are in the entire book. Remember, Isaiah doesn't have a lot of uh, chronological markers. Um, there's one in six, there's one in seven, there's one at the beginning. But really, there's not really much. But here he gives us a, a marker. And, uh, and the year, the year is now 701 BC. And Sennacherib is the king of the Assyrian Empire. He has acceded to the throne roughly four years before this in 705. The Assyrians have already had a massive impact in the region. Um, if we're familiar with any of the Old Testament history, their power and their dominance have been made clear. They have conquered most of the ancient Near Eastern world. 
Um, Assyria had already taken the northern kingdom of Israel into captivity in 722 um, and hauled them off. And so everyone was well aware of what they were capable of. By the 701, Sennacherib had already spent several years quelling rebellion in, uh, on his eastern flank in the, in the region of Babylon. Now he is launching a campaign on his western flank to deal with the regions of Tyre, Philistia, Egypt, and of course, to deal with Judah. Uh, the parallel narrative is carried uh, forward for us in 2 Kings chapter 18. And you can read in verse 7, of 2 Kings 18, that Hezekiah actually, because emboldened by Egypt's help, or at least promise of help, was emboldened to rebel against Assyria. And so Sennacherib and his army decided to pay the entire region a visit to keep things under control, which immediately prompts Hezekiah to agree to pay him a large tribute of gold and silver to kind of back off. And you can read about that in 2 Kings chapter 18, verses 13 to 16. But that peace that he bought off Assyria with in 2 Kings 18 was very short-lived. And here we see Sennacherib renewing his military pressure against Hezekiah and against Jerusalem. He is threatening to conquer them and, as Assyria was prone to do, haul them away, deport them to another region. Um, and he'd done that already in some of the surrounding regions, uh, surrounding cities in Judah. In fact, the Assyrian records themselves, secular records, confirm the biblical account in Kings and Chronicles. You can read about that. They claimed, the Assyrians claimed to have captured 200,150 200, people in 46 towns, while Hezekiah was, quote, made a prisoner in Jerusalem, his royal residence like a bird in a cage. So, so we have a, a, a second witness, if you will, uh, of this the events that are transcribed here in the scriptures. The Assyrians came down the coastal route and they laid siege to the important city of Lachish, which was about 30 miles southwest of Jerusalem. And by this time, Sennacherib had already defeated the rebels in the surrounding regions of Tyre. He had laid waste to some of Philistia and he had dealt Egypt an embarrassing defeat, the one time it actually came up to help some of its quote-unquote allies in the region above it. It only then made sense for Sennacherib to finish the job and to take care of Judah as well. And so he sends an envoy of high-ranking officials. It only records one here in, in Isaiah, but uh, in, King, in Second Kings uh, we, or Chronicles, I can't remember which one, it references several others that came with him. And we see this envoy come to King Hezekiah, verse 2, and the king of Assyria sent Rabshakeh. Now that term is actually more of a title means cupbearer or chief cupbearer, but here it's used like as a proper noun, like his name, so we're just going to treat it like a name. He sent Rabshakeh from Lachish to Jerusalem to King Hezekiah with a large army and stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway of the fuller's field. And then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, was, who was over the house, household, and Shebna, the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came out to meet him. Interestingly enough, the very place that this individual, Rob Shekah, comes out to meet the delegates from Hezekiah's court is the very same place that Isaiah, years before, had warned Ahaz that he needed to trust God. Remember in Isaiah chapter 7, in verse 3, it was here, uh, it was here at the, uh, 
at the conduit of the upper pool on the highway of the Fuller's Field. It's the exact same place. And uh, they were put to the test then when Syria and Ephraim aligned themselves against David's city, and they're about to be put to the test again. So this individual, this, this man, Rabshakeh, delivers a message to Isaiah's court, these three individuals, and the message is simply this, you have no hope. That's the message. You look at verse 4, and then Rabshakeh said to them, Say now to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, what is this confidence that you have? I say your counsel and strength for the war are only empty words. Now on whom do you rely that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you rely on the staff of this crushed reed, even on Egypt, on which if a man leans, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So thus is Pharaoh king of Egypt to all who rely on him. He begins here in these verses, he points out that Judah doesn't have any military strength to match toe for toe with Assyria. That is plainly obvious just based on its, its, the size of the country. But he also points out they don't even have reliable allies that they can call on like Egypt. He describes them like a splintered rod. If you lean on it, it snaps and it'll stick into your hand. That's how, that's how useless they are. And then he proceeds to mock Hezekiah in his spiritual reforms. You see that in verse 7. But if you say to me, we will trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and has said to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall not worship before this altar? And why does he say this? Why does he point this out? Well, he's likely exploiting this Rabshakeh character here. It's like exploiting some smoldering discontentment among the people after Hezekiah actually brought worship back into conformity with the law, that it was to be at the temple and not kind of distributed all over the land in, in however anybody wanted to do it. And so that likely provoked some disappointment, some discontentment amongst the people. And he claims here wrongly that, that the Lord is a false hope. So this Rob Shaker character then goes on to sow seeds of doubt in verses 8 to 10, again, pointing out that Judah's unable to match Assyria's military might, and again claiming in verse 10 that God has sent him, Yahweh has sent him to conquer Judah. All of this is to say, basically old school taunting. (laughs) This is what he's doing here. This is not some kind of formal diplomatic appeal. Uh, this This is Sennacherib's attempt to bully and frighten Hezekiah and Jerusalem, the people of Jerusalem, into submission. They have no power, they have no allies, and Rob Shaker would have them believe they have no God to deliver them, that there is no hope. And then in verses 13 to 20, Rob Shaker then takes his message from these individuals, these, uh, these court officials, and then he takes his message straight to the people with a populist message of peace. The leaders in any conflict, are the ones who make that decision to go to war. Those of you who have been in the military understand that you, you, don't, you, you're, you serve at the, at the um, behest of the United States government. They make those decisions, but it's the common people who end up as collateral damage in those conflicts, suffering as a result of those decisions. And he exploits that in verses 13 to 17. Then Rabshakeh stood and cried with a loud voice in Judean, instead of you know, speaking in the language 
uh, of Aramaic, he said, Here are the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hands of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah. For thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me, and come out to me, and eat each of his... Eat each of his vine and each of his fig tree and drink each of the waters of his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own, a land of grain and new, uh, grain and new wine and a land of bread and vineyards. So again, Rob Sheikh is speaking in Hebrew instead of Aramaic. He wants them to understand exactly what he's saying. He plays on the people's fear, their fear of a long, and this is a legitimate fear, a long and difficult siege. It would be incredibly difficult, incredibly agonizing. He says, stand down, come out, give up, and you can be deported and live the rest of your lives in relative ease with us. That's a tempting offer when you're facing imminent siege and being surrounded by an overwhelming superpower. And it was probably one that looked very appealing to some in their midst. And that's why he offers it up. The reality of the situation is dire. From a purely human perspective, they are surrounded by a superior military force. They have no resources left to even purchase allies. Um, and the allies that they could call on were not dependable. And if they hole up in the city, they face the prospect of being surrounded, starved out, and enduring unspeakable suffering and agony before they die. Not a promising thing. From a purely human perspective, the beleaguered children of promise in Judah look doomed with the great king of Assyria kind of marching up to their doorstep. But we have to remember Isaiah's words to Ahaz. At the, the, same, at the same place when both Syria and Ephraim came together and threatened to overthrow Jerusalem and depose the king. You remember in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 9, Isaiah told Ahaz, if you will not believe, you surely shall not last. It's a play on words, we said. It's in the original language, it's basically stand firm in your faith or you will not stand at all. In other words, trust or bust, right? God's people always have two choices. Either you will trust God's revealed word and his promises and he will establish and sustain or you grab the reins from God, and in the end, the result will bring your downfall. Ahaz failed the test. Do you remember? He failed the test. He refused to trust the word of the Lord, and consequently, he ultimately sowed the seeds of Judah's eventual exile. Hezekiah and his advisors, as we will see, pass the test. And as a result, God establishes them. God delights to turn apparent defeats into victories. He loves to turn apparent nobodies into somebodies. And so, in these opening 17 verses, we see Jerusalem's distress. As we come to uh, verse 18 and following into most of chapter 37, we see Hezekiah's dependence. Hezekiah's dependence. Up to this point, Rabshakeh is doing a pretty good job um, from a purely earthly perspective. He's been savvy politically up to this point. He's been savvy militarily, right? Showing up with a massive show of force. He is cutting Judah off from all of their allies. 
He even tries to sweeten the, the bitter pill of deportation by telling him it won't be that bad. You can, everyone will sit under his vine and his fig tree. Right? He's promising the common folk a comfortable life in a foreign land. Where Rabshakeh makes a strategic error, as all prideful, arrogant people do, is that he keeps talking. Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah, these three councils, uh, counselors and officials in Hezekiah's court, they got him monologuing, and that's when he gets himself in trouble. Look at verse 18. He's going on and on about all these things, and then he says, Beware that Hezekiah does not mislead you, saying, The Lord will deliver us. Has any one of the gods of the nations delivered his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim? And and when have they delivered Samaria from my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their land from my hand? That the Lord would deliver Jerusalem from my hand. What Sennacherib, through his spokesman here, says, reveals an arrogant and boastful spirit, which is obvious. Hezekiah has assured the people that God will stand with them, God will deliver them, but this Rabshakeh character has run his mouth. He has run his mouth, and in so doing, he has claimed that God, Yahweh, is no more powerful than the no-gods, the false gods of Hamath, of Arpad, and Sepharvaim, who, because they weren't able to deliver Assyria from, uh, deliver them from Assyria's hand. Sennacherib has unwittingly set himself up as a competitor to the living God. That's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off for him. It is worth, noteworthy how Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah respond to Rab Sheikh's boastful provocation here. There's no rising up and responding in kind. There is no call to verbal warfare. There is no panic. Look at verse 21. But they were silent and answered him not a word. For the king's commandment was, do not answer him. They were silent. In the midst of provocation, in the midst of arrogant boasting, in the midst of uh, existential threat, they were silent. It sounds like somebody else we know, doesn't it? Our Lord, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23, while being reviled, did not what? Revile in return, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. The response of faith is one of, of trust and silence. What else do they do? Verse 22, then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him, relate all the words of Rabshakeh. Not only were they silent and trusting to him who judges righteously, but they tore their clothes, a sign of penitence, a sign of lowliness, a sign of humility. The seriousness of the situation was not lost on them. They recognized the, d- the danger. They knew what was coming, potentially. And despite the graveness of the hour, they still respond with a heart of trust, a heart of faith. And they brought this news, all of it, to the king. And I want you to notice what Hezekiah does in chapter 37 and verse 1. When he heard it, when he heard this message, Hezekiah tore his clothes covered himself with sackcloth, and entered the house of the Lord. He goes, in the midst of this uh, crisis, he goes to the temple. He goes up to the temple, the place where God 
promises to dwell among his people, where he promises to meet with them, the place where they were to pray and to call out to him. And Hezekiah then sends word to Isaiah. And his words to Isaiah are words of contrition, they are words of humility, and they are words of weakness. And this is not a false humility like Ahaz. Remember, Ahaz is like, I couldn't possibly ask the Lord to test that, you know. But that was a false humility. He was almost um, rejecting that option because he'd made his decision not to trust the Lord. Here, we see real lowliness from a true heart of faith and true dependence upon the Lord. There are three things that stand out in these verses, uh, verses 3 and 4. First, there's a recognition of his own helplessness. He called these men, and then he relayed the message to Isaiah. And he said to them, Thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of distress, verse 3, rebuke and rejection. For children have come to birth, and there is no strength to deliver. He understands that he is a bird in a cage. Like a woman who's come full term but now has no strength to deliver her child, Judah is incapable of accomplishing what they have planned to defend their city to deliver themselves from this enemy. Secondly, not only is there a recognition of helplessness, there's a genuine concern for the Lord's honor. Look at verse 4. He goes on to say, Perhaps the Lord your God will hear the words of Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to reproach the living God, and he will rebuke the words which the Lord your God has heard. This isn't about Hezekiah. All of, none of this is about him. Uh, this is all about the Lord. This is about his glory. It is about his honor, which, he, of course, he promises to vindicate. Thirdly, he's looking out for the, Hezekiah is looking out for the well-being of the Lord's people. Look at the end of verse 4. Therefore, offer a prayer for the remnant that is left. He messed up. He knew. He knew he had failed. He knew he had made Uh, And and the people had made an error, and in repentance, he trusted that the Lord would show pity on his people. Well, when the officials come to Isaiah and pass the king's message along, Isaiah, as a prophet of God, already has a word from the Lord queued up and ready to go. Look at verse 6. So the servants of Hezekiah came to Isaiah And Isaiah said to them, Thus you shall say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he will hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. God, through the mouth of his prophet, foretells what is about to take place. This is part of the ministry of the prophets. We said they don't always speak about the future, but they do speak about the future, and here we see him doing that. God will put a powerful spirit of influence on Sennacherib. He will hear a report. Whether or not it's true or not, he will hear a rumor. He will then, as a result of that, return to his own land, and God promises through the mouth of Isaiah that Sennacherib will eventually die by the sword. This, by the way, is real power. This is real sovereignty. Our God, with nothing more than a whisper and a rumor, can turn the heart of a king and bring about his demise. Proverbs 21, verse 1, The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. 
Uh, Proverbs 16, 18, it is true that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. Both of those truisms prove themselves out in this narrative. And beginning in verse 8 down through verse 13, the whispers and rumors came. Rumors circulated that this king of Cush, Terhaka, was, uh, was on the march against Sennacherib. And no military commander, no matter how mighty, wants to fight a war on two fronts. And so he quickly hastens and prompts, this prompts Rabshakeh to come back and with a letter and a, and a message repeating all the blasphemous things he said about the Lord earlier, how the Lord was weak, how he was untrustworthy, how he was powerless to rescue God's people. And we see that kind of laid out in verses 8 to 13. And so Hezekiah takes the letter and he went up to the temple to pray. Listen to how utterly dependent and humble his heart is in verse 16. Chapter 37, he says, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, who is enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and listen to all the words of Sennacherib, who sent them to reproach the living God. Truly, O Lord, the king of Assyria have the kings of Assyria have devastated all the countries and their lands, and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, they were no gods, but the work of men of men's hands, wood and stone, so they have destroyed them. Now, O Lord, deliver us from his hand. He acknowledges in this prayer the Lord's omnipotence. He affirms that all the gods of the earth are nothing. And then he pleads with the Lord to bring deliverance. Why? So that Hezekiah might be saved, so that uh, the people would live in peace, that Hezekiah would have a great name. No, look at the end of verse 20. So that all the kings of the earth may know that you alone, Lord, are God. This is the reason. This is what faith in God does. It prays, it pleads, It petitions God to act in such a way that he vindicates his great name and extols his honor and glory. A good question we might ask ourselves when we pray to the Lord is this. Am I asking God for this thing or this outcome for my glory or for his? Am I asking for this to spend it, as James 4 says, on my pleasures or to magnify his reputation, his honor, his, his glory. I think if we stop and think about it, we probably pray very differently and certainly more frequently if God's glory was our greatest concern. Did God hear Hezekiah's prayer? He certainly did. And he responds with a decisive word in verses 22 and following. He, he, he prays, and Isaiah comes to him, and he says, because you have prayed to me, the Lord says, because you have prayed about this situation to me, verse 22, this is the word of the Lord has spoken against him, against Sennacherib. And the word is this, she, Syria, has despised you and mocked you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She has shaken her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. Whom have you reproached and blasphemed? And against whom have you raised your voice and haughtily lifted up your eyes? against the Holy One of Israel. Through your servants, you have reproached the Lord. 
And you have said, with my many chariots, I came up to the heights of the mountains, to the remotest parts of Lebanon. And I cut down all the tall cedars and its choice cypresses. And I will go to its highest peak in its thickest forest. I dug wells and drank waters. And with the sole of my feet, I dried up all the rivers of Egypt. Have you not heard? Long ago, I did it. From ancient times, I planned it. Now I have brought it to pass that you should turn fortified cities into ruinous heaps. Therefore, their inhabitants were short of strength. They were dismayed and put to shame. They were as vegetation of the field and as the green herb, as the grass on the housetops is scorched before it's grown up. This is the Lord speaking here. But I know you're sitting down and you're going out and you're coming in and you're raging against me. Because of your raging against me and because of your arrogance, because your arrogance has come up to my ears, therefore I will put my hook in your nose and my bridle in your lips, and I will turn you back by the way which you came. God is not mocked. What a man sows, he will reap. Assyria sowed arrogance and pride and blasphemy against the living God, and they are going to reap the whirlwind of his judgment. The way Assyria led their captives away, literally humiliating them by putting a hook in their nose, a bridle in their lips. That is how God says he will lead them away. And then God gives Hezekiah a promise in verses 30 to 32. In just a short period of time, life is going to come back to normal. The usual pattern of agriculture will resume, right? They're surrounded. There's no way to to sow seed. There's no way to, to bring in a harvest in that situation. And he says, this year will be tough. Next year, you'll eat what's left over. And in the third year, you'll sow and reap and plant and eat their fruit. He says, in three years' time, the usual pattern of agriculture will resume. He also promises the Sennacherib and the Assyrians will not, will not achieve their goal of subduing, of subduing Jerusalem. He says, uh, for out of Jerusalem will go forth a remnant and out of Mount Zion survivors, right? This is all going to happen. And how can Hezekiah be so sure that Sennacherib and the Assyrians will have no opportunity here? How can he be so confident that this is going to take place? Look at the end of verse 32. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. God who cannot lie has promised, verse 35, I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. He can be confident that this is what's going to happen because God is the one who is zealous for his own glory. So we've seen Jerusalem's distress, Hezekiah's dependence. Thirdly, in verses 36 and 38 to 38, we see God's deliverance. God's deliverance. What the Lord said he would do through the mouth of the prophet, he did. Look at verse 36. Then the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when men arose early in the morning, behold, all of these were dead. And so Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. And it came about as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, that Adramelech and Sherezer, his sons, killed him with the sword, and they escaped into the land of Ararat. And Esarhaddon, his son, became king in his place. It's interesting. Back in chapter 36 and verses 18 to 20, Rabshakeh 
five different times questioned whether God could deliver Judah, whether God could deliver his own people. And here we see what God delivers his people. The bird in a cage is worth more to God than 185,000 in the bush. And of course, none of this should have, should have come as a surprise because God had already tipped his hand what he was going to do. If you look back at Isaiah chapter 14 for just a moment, in verses 24 to 27, Isaiah has already prophesied and, warned, and really alerted the people to look sharp that God was going to break Assyria in their land and drive them out. Isaiah 14 and verse 24, the Lord of hosts has sworn saying, surely just as I have intended, so it has happened. And just as I have planned, so it will stand to break Assyria in my land. And I will trample him on my mountains. Then his yoke will be removed from them and his burden removed from their shoulder. And then in verse 26, we see that this near-term deliverance that God promises through the prophet, he, God says when that happens, that, would be that will be representative of what God will do in that day, that future day throughout the entire earth, vindicating his holiness and saving his people. Verse 26, this is the plan devised against the whole earth, and this is the hand that is stretched out against all the nations. God says what I do there, I will do everywhere. For the Lord of hosts has planned it, who can frustrate it? As for this stretched out hand, who can turn it back? The, the point is this, the near-term fulfillment that we read about in 36 and 37 is proof that the Lord is king of kings, that the Lord alone is worthy of all of our trust. For who can frustrate his plans? I mean, that's the point. Who can frustrate his plans and who can turn back his outstretched arm? Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 2. Just kind of draw our message to a, a point of application. You remember in the opening book of Samuel, this barren woman, Hannah, prays to the Lord. She had no children, which was a deep uh, shame in that culture. It was something that uh, provoked her. She was provoked by Elkanah's other wife. It was just kind of a bad situation. And she pleads for the Lord to hear her and to give her a son. Of course, he does that. Samuel is born. She went back up to the temple at Shiloh to pay her vows. And, and because she had vowed to give him to the Lord's service, she offered up Samuel to Eli and then also uh, offers up this incredible prayer in the opening verses of chapter 2 that really gathers up the central message of our text in Isaiah. Listen to this prayer and how steadfastly that Hannah's prayer affirms that the Lord is king and how, hear how uncompromising her faith and trust in the Lord is. Verse 2, she says, There is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. Boast no more so very proudly. Do not let arrogance come out of your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and with him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are shattered, but the feeble gird on strength. Those who were full hire themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry cease to hunger. Even the barren gives birth to seven, but she who has many children languishes. 
The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low. He also exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and he set the world on them. He keeps the feet of his godly ones, but the wicked ones are silenced in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. Those who contend with the Lord will be shattered, and against them he will thunder in the heavens. The Lord will judge all the ends of the earth, and he will give strength to his king, and will exalt the horn of his anointed." Two verses in particular stand out here. One is verse 4. The bows of the mighty are shattered, but the feeble, the weak, gird on strength. Here we see Hannah give voice to God's love for turning apparent nobodies into somebodies. And conversely, turning apparent somebodies into nobodies. Or to put it in terms that our Lord uses in Matthew's gospel, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Sennacherib, and by extension his messengers and all who were with him, thought they were something. They thought they were something, and they, you know, they'd conquered most of the ancient Near Eastern world up to that point, and they thought that they were invincible, calling into question the power and the glory and the faithfulness of the living God. And that is always, always, always a recipe for being served a double portion of humble pie. Isaiah 42, verse 8, the Lord says, I am Yahweh, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. That is a, that is a promise. God tolerates no rivals, nor should he. He alone is worthy of all of our trust. But if you won't tolerate prideful and, uh, and arrogant People, if that if he opposes them, as Peter records, then who does he look to? First Peter five verse five tells us God lavishes grace on the humble. One of the takeaways from this text is a reminder that you and I must continually, day by day, clothe ourselves with humility. It is the lowly. It is the humble of heart, the contrite, those who tremble at his words, Isaiah says, that ultimately capture his gracious gaze. And if that's the one the Lord promises to honor, if that's the one the Lord promises to exalt, then that's the kind of person we need to strive to be by the Spirit's power. A second, a second kind of key verse in this prayer is verse 9. He keeps, God keeps the feet of his godly ones, but the wicked ones are silenced in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. We have to understand that all any of us are or will be has been bestowed upon us by the Lord's sovereign hand. God knows, we saw in our text, our sitting down and our going out. He knows our coming in. Like he knows it all. All that we've accomplished or will accomplish, God says long ago, I did it. From ancient times, I planned it. I have brought it to pass. So we don't get to take credit for anything. There are no self-made men or women in God's kingdom. Only those who acknowledge, as Paul did, by the grace of God, I am what I am. 
chasing vainly after power, prominence, influence, and control, and so forth, just isn't how God's purposes are going to be accomplished in your life individually or the church's life collectively. But most of us, like Judah, are not willing. We're not willing to walk that pilgrim path. In repentance and rest, Isaiah says, you will be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength. The Lord is the king of kings, and he tolerates no rivals. And he calls every one of his children to a life of humility, repentance, and trust that begins as we place our trust in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's how we enter into his heavenly kingdom as we look to Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And that's how we abide in him. That's how we remain in him, bearing much fruit. As John 15 says, you know, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. But anyone who's not in that vine, anyone who is not a part of that vine, he says, is thrown away as a branch and dries up and they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. He says, so if my word abides in me and I in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. For this, my father is for my father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit. So this is this is the heart of this text. It is one of uh, God's glory and man's humility. We have nothing to offer the Lord except what He has already given to us, and so we turn that back to Him in praise, in dependence, and trust. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the confrontation that happens as we come to your word. It's, it's, a, it's a difficult thing sometimes to be reminded of who we are before you, and, but it's also an encouragement to remember of who we are in you. So I ask, Lord, that you would comfort and encourage those who are discouraged and faint-hearted. Help them to turn to you, knowing that all their trust in you is well-placed. Lord, help us to acknowledge that you are the King of kings. Lord, you delight to turn nobodies in this world into somebodies. You delight to turn that which is weak into something that is strong. Um, Paul said, it, our, your power is perfected in our weakness. And that's not a message the world likes to hear. It's not a message even we like to hear sometimes. Or wherever you, 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 you promise to exalt us. It may not be in, in, the, in a way that the world um, recognizes. It may not be in a place that we would want to be um, in our own flesh. But Lord, help us to be content and trust you. Help us to serve you above all. May we take the posture of Hezekiah and his, and his court officials, Lord, humble, repentant, contrite, trembling at your word. We know that this is what honors you. We ask us for your honor and for your glory. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by today's message. For more information or more messages like this, visit us at cascadesbiblechurch.com or subscribe via your favorite podcast app.